This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode of The Conspirators is brought to you by audible.com. If you're like me, an imaginary spy on the run from non-existent government agencies, you don't always have time to sit down and read a book. That's where audible.com comes in. They have an enormous selection of audiobooks read by some of the best voice talent in the world. Everything, including science fiction, love stories, comedies, and my personal favorites, espionage, history, and murder mysteries. Over 180,000 titles available on your favorite audio device. Right now, you can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash theconspirators. And now, on with the show. On May 7, 1896, a condemned man was given his last meal. The man's birth name was Herman Webster Mudgett, although later in life he would be known under a number of other identities. For his last meal before he was to be hanged, the man requested a simple meal of soft-boiled eggs, toast, and coffee. A New York Times reporter would later remark at how cool and collected the condemned man was as he dug into his food. There was something unrepentant about the way the man cracked each eggshell, the reporter said, stabbing his way into the soft, gooey interior. He ate everything, leaving only breadcrumbs and broken pieces of empty shell. When Herman Webster Mudgett was finished, he dabbed daintily at the corners of his mouth with his napkin and smiled contentedly. He maintained this calm demeanor right until the bitter end. When they led him down the long, dark prison corridors out to the gallows, he stepped up and freely allowed the executioner to place the noose around his neck. Take your time, he told the hangman. Don't bungle it. But the execution didn't go off as planned after all. The hangman threw the switch, and the trapdoor opened beneath Mudgett's feet. He dropped six feet, and the rope drew taut around his neck. It should have broken his neck and killed him instantly, but something went wrong, and the man didn't die. For nearly fifteen minutes, his legs thrashed violently as he slowly choked to death. It was a horrendous death for the witnesses to have to see, but then again, it was nothing compared to what Herman Mudgett had done to his many victims. No one knows for certain how many people he may have killed. Although he was officially convicted of killing four people, some historians have estimated his body count to be as high as 200. Herman Webster Mudgett would go down in history as one of the most notorious murderers of all time. Although during his reign of terror, he became better known by one of his many aliases. Today, Herman Webster Mudgett is much better known as H.H. Holmes. And before he died, he swore he had the devil in him. I'm Nate Hale, and I swear the devil didn't make me do it. And this is The Conspirators. 
The man who would become known as H.H. Holmes was born on May 16, 1861 in Gilmerton, New Hampshire. He was the third-born child of Levi Horton Mudgett and Theodata Page Price, both of whom were descendants of the first English settlers in the area. Although he was born Herman Webster Mudgett, and he assumed many other identities throughout his life, I'll refer to him as H.H. Holmes from here on to make it easier on all of us. Holmes's parents were both devout Methodists, and his father was both a farmer and a violent alcoholic. Holmes's father would beat his children mercilessly if they did anything to anger him. And he was even known to occasionally use chloroform on them to knock them unconscious if they really got out of line. Despite his turbulent home life, Holmes was an excellent student. It was obvious from an early age that he was smarter than most of his peers, which led to him being bullied by jealous classmates. When Holmes was a boy, a group of bullies forced him into a local doctor's office and made him stand face to face with a human skeleton. The young Holmes was terrified at first, but then, after a few minutes of literally staring death in the face, something changed in him. Fear turned to fascination. He would write much later on that this was a turning point of sorts for him, and that this encounter would lead him to a new obsession with death, and eventually to a new hobby dissecting small animals. There's even reason to believe that the young Holmes didn't limit himself to just killing animals either. It should be pointed out that Holmes's best friend when he was a child died from a mysterious fall. Although there's no direct evidence that Holmes had anything to do with the boy's death, knowing what we know now about the man, it can only make you wonder. Holmes graduated from high school at age 16. He took teaching jobs in Gilmanton, and later in the nearby town of Alton. That's where he met and married Clara Lovering, and together they had a son, Robert Lovering Mudgett, in February 1880. At age 18, Holmes enrolled in the University of Vermont in Burlington, but left school after only one year. In 1882, he enrolled in the University of Michigan Medical School, and he proved to be a bright but erratic student. He came up with a scheme early on where he would steal cadavers from the laboratory, then take out a large life insurance policy on a fictional relative, then burn or disfigure the stolen body and claim he was the sole beneficiary of the policy. In 1884, Holmes passed his medical exams. Shortly after, he abandoned his wife and son and began moving around the country, honing his criminal craft with a number of money-making schemes. During this period, Holmes spent some time in Moore's Fork, New York, where he was seen in the company of a little boy, who later went missing. When authorities came around to question Holmes about the boy's whereabouts, he told them the boy had returned to his home in Massachusetts. Apparently this was good enough for the police because no further investigation took place. Holmes abruptly left town after that and headed to Philadelphia. He got a job very briefly as a keeper at the Norristown State Hospital, then later took a job in a Philadelphia drugstore. While he was employed there, a minor scandal erupted when a young boy died after taking medicine purchased at the store. Holmes skipped town again shortly thereafter and headed to Chicago, where he assumed the name Henry Howard Holmes and set forth the events that really cemented his name in history. In Chicago, Holmes got a job working at a local pharmacy. After the pharmacy's owner died of cancer, 
the owner's widow assumed control of the store, but not for very long. Holm convinced the woman to sell him the store, assuring her that she could continue to live upstairs for as long as she wanted. Not long after the woman signed over the store, she disappeared. When customers came around inquiring about what had happened to her, Holmes explained that she had moved to California to live with family. Holmes proved to be a rather successful businessman. He was handsome and charming, and he had a way about him that made women seem to gravitate toward him. In 1887, Holmes married a woman named Murda Belknap, although he never officially divorced his first wife, Clara. Murda came to work in the pharmacy, although she soon began to feel jealous about the way Holmes constantly flirted with the female customers. So Holmes talked her into moving into an upstairs office and doing clerical work where she couldn't see his interactions with other women. Murda didn't care for this arrangement, so she left him and moved back in with her parents, even though she was pregnant with Holmes's child. She soon gave birth to a daughter. For a time, Holmes would visit them and play with the little girl although over time those visits would become less and less frequent. Holmes was the sort of person who never seemed to be satisfied with what he had. He was a visionary of sorts, and he always seemed focused on the next big opportunity. In this case, opportunity wasn't very far away at all. Directly across the street, as a matter of fact. From the pharmacy's front window, you could see a large vacant lot. Holmes bought the lot and began construction of an enormous three-story hotel that would initially earn the nickname The Castle. Although later on, once the truth became known to the world, many people would refer to it as the Murder Castle. The Chicago World's Fair was set to open in 1893, and Holmes knew that opening a hotel would be a surefire money-making scheme in more ways than one. He designed the building himself, and to keep its many secrets, he would typically hire a crew of workers to begin construction, then fire them after only a couple of weeks and refuse to pay them, claiming shoddy workmanship. Throughout his life, Holmes did everything he could to avoid paying for pretty much anything. During his wanderings before moving to Chicago, Holmes had learned the criminal art of buying things on credit, then skipping out on his bills. For example, he bought all the furnishings for his hotel on credit and refused to pay after everything was delivered. But when the bank sent men to the hotel to repossess everything, they searched the premises but couldn't find any of the furnishings. During the night, Holmes had his own workers move all the furniture into an empty room. Then he had the doorway bricked up and papered over. Money was a constant motivating factor for Holmes. He never seemed to have enough of it, and he was always looking for ways to game the system in his favor. In order to finance construction of his hotel, Holmes forged the signature of his wife Myrna's wealthy uncle, John Belknap, on a loan application. Even long before he became aware of what Holmes had done, John Belknap never had a good feeling about his niece's husband. He knew, of course, about their troubled marriage, but Holmes made a show of trying to reconcile with Myrna. So as a gesture of good faith against his better judgment... Belknap accepted Holmes's offer to come to the city to see the grand hotel he was building. Belknap thought the place was gloomy, and rightly so, told people the place gave him the creeps. He also had a bad feeling about it when Holmes began urging the man to follow him up to the roof to get a better look at the surrounding city. Belknap declined, claiming his old bones wouldn't allow him to climb the many steps to the roof. But even after that, he still didn't want to be rude to his niece's husband. 
So although he didn't really want to, he accepted Holmes' offer to stay the night in the hotel. That night, Belknap didn't sleep a wink, and it's almost certainly a good thing. Around 2 a.m., as Belknap lie there staring up at the ceiling, he heard someone fiddling with the doorknob to his room. Belknap had locked the door earlier, and he was even more alarmed when he heard someone insert a key into the lock. He called out, demanding to know who was there. At first, there was no answer. Then came a reply from one of Holmes' employees, a man named Patrick Quinlan, who claimed he was just stopping by to check on Belknap. This was startling because Belknap had believed that Holmes had been the only other person in the hotel with him. Belknap told the man to go away, which he finally did. Much later, when Belknap would recount the story, he would add with much certainty that if he'd been a little less cautious that night, he was certain he would have never left the castle alive. Like Holmes himself, the castle's walls held many secrets. As I mentioned, Holmes had gone to great lengths to ensure that he was the only one who knew about all the many surprises he had designed throughout the building. The ground floor contained Holmes's newly relocated drugstore and various shops, while the upper floors contained Holmes's office and guest rooms. The angled hallways were a labyrinth of twisting passageways and stairways that led nowhere. There were doors that opened up onto brick walls, and others that could only be entered from the outside. He installed an alarm system onto all the guest rooms that would alert him when anyone was walking around the hotel. Some rooms were completely soundproofed and airtight. Some of these rooms were fitted with gas lines to asphyxiate victims while they slept. Still others were reinforced with metal plates and gas-powered blowtorches to burn people alive. Another secret room could only be entered by a trapdoor in the ceiling inside of which Holmes would leave victims to slowly die of hunger and thirst. There was even a room dedicated solely to hanging people by the neck until dead. Then there was the vault. It was an actual bank vault that he purchased on credit. When the bank tried to repossess the vault for non-payment, Holmes showed them how it had been installed and told them to take it back if they wanted it, but then threatened to sue them if they damaged his hotel in any way while removing it. Holmes retrofitted the vault with gas jets and would sometimes lock victims inside to slowly suffocate. Holmes had created a perfect killing ground. He preyed mostly on single victims, people who came to town for the fair who wouldn't be missed. He hired mostly female employees and required as a condition of employment that they take out life insurance policies for which Holmes would pay the premiums, but also be named sole beneficiary. One of his employees was a man named Ned Connor, who began working at the pharmacy's jewelry counter. He was married to a woman named Julia Smythe. Julia was a striking woman, blonde, blue-eyed, and unusually tall, over six feet. It wasn't long before Holmes began paying special attention to Julia, something that made Ned extremely uncomfortable. When Ned caught wind that they were having an affair, he quit his job and left Julia and their daughter Pearl behind. Julia was unique in that she had come to be aware of some of Holmes' secret dealings. And when she became pregnant by him, she insisted that he marry her in order to keep those secrets. Holmes agreed to the marriage, but only on the condition that Julia would agree to have an abortion, which, being a doctor, he would perform himself in the laboratory he had set up in the hotel's basement. Julia reluctantly agreed, and shortly thereafter, she vanished without a trace. 
along with her daughter Pearl. People came by the hotel looking for Julia, but Holmes told them that she and Pearl had moved away to live with family in Iowa. It was right around the same time that Holmes employed the services of a man named Charles M. Chappell, who had a very particular skill. Chappell was an amateur taxidermist. Holmes paid Chappell $36 to strip the flesh from a cadaver he had in his possession and to articulate the remaining skeleton so that he could sell it for medical research. Chappell didn't ask many questions, although he thought it was unusual that the woman's face had been disfigured beyond recognition. It was doubly unusual how tall she was, more than six feet to be exact. Holmes would employ Chappell to perform the same service twice more. The second time the body was that of an unidentified man, and the third time was another woman. Chappell proved to be an ideal accomplice because he didn't ask the obvious questions, and he later claimed that he had no idea Holmes had been murdering these people. But Holmes, being Holmes, did what he did so often and refused to pay Chappell for his services after he finished with the third body. So in that instance, Chappell refused to hand over the skeleton, choosing instead to keep it in his home. Later, after the police had finally caught wind of Holmes's crimes, Chappell cooperated and handed over the skull for examination. In 1892, Holmes met a railroad heiress named Minnie Williams while on a business trip to Boston. He started courting her long distance, and eventually Holmes's love letters won her over and she moved to Chicago to be with him. He proposed to Minnie while, if you're keeping score, he was still legally married to two other women at the same time. Although many had known Holmes as Henry Gordon, he convinced her that it was strictly for business purposes that he conducted his affairs in Chicago under the name Henry Holmes. Minnie was completely smitten with Holmes, so it didn't take much convincing to get her to agree to transfer the deed to her property in Fort Worth, Texas to a man named Alexander Bond. Bond, as you probably have guessed, was yet another alias for Holmes. After that, Holmes encouraged Minnie to invite her sister Annie to visit them in Chicago. When Annie arrived, Holmes gave her a dose of his signature charm, and the two hit it off. Holmes offered to give her a tour of the hotel, and it was on this tour that he led her to the vault. Holmes locked Annie inside the vault and turned on the gas jets. Then he dropped her body down the greased metal chute he had had installed that led to his basement lab. Not long after, Minnie herself vanished as well. Thus began the next stages of what would become Holmes' escape plan. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In 1893, Holmes could see the writing on the wall, and with creditors breathing down his neck, as well as a continual string of relatives who came to the hotel looking for their missing loved ones, he decided now would be a good time for a change of scenery. He left Chicago and headed for Fort Worth, where he initially planned on building another hotel. He planned on transferring the deed from Minnie's property into the hands of a trusted accomplice, a former carpenter who helped build the hotel named Benjamin Peitzel. He took Peitzel and a new girlfriend with him, but when he got there, he was prevented from taking control of the property. So they then went to St. Louis, Missouri, 
and that's where Holmes was finally briefly incarcerated for the first time on charges of selling mortgaged goods. Holmes would be bailed out very quickly, but during his short stint in jail, he made the acquaintance of a convicted bank robber named Marion Hedgepath. Holmes had previously concocted a plan with Peitzel that harkened back to some of his earliest swindles. He and Peitzel had concocted a scheme to fake Holmes's death and collect the $10,000 insurance policy he had taken out in his own name. In order to make the swindle work, Holmes would need the assistance of a lawyer who didn't mind getting his hands a little dirty. He offered Hedgepath $500 in exchange for the name of a lawyer who could be trusted. Hedgepath gave Holmes the name of Jephthah Howe, a young St. Louis attorney with a shady reputation. But Holmes' plan failed when the insurance company became suspicious and refused to pay. Holmes didn't press the claim, but instead decided to try it again, this time with his partner Peitzel. Peitzel agreed to take out a $10,000 insurance policy on himself, after which Holmes told him they would fake his death in an explosion, and then Peitzel's wife could collect the insurance money and split it with Holmes and the crooked attorney. It was Holmes' job to find an appropriate cadaver they could use to make the plan work. And he did. None other than Benjamin Peitzel, who Holmes knocked out using chloroform right before setting him on fire. Peitzel's wife had no idea what Holmes had done. He told her that Peitzel was laying low in London for a while until the investigation died down. Remarkably, Peitzel's wife bought the story hook, line, and sinker. Holmes even convinced the unknowing widow to allow him to take three of her five children into his custody. Holmes and the three children traveled throughout the northern United States and Canada under a number of assumed identities. At the same time, he led Mrs. Peitzel on a parallel route around the country, somehow managing to keep her in the dark as to what had really happened to her husband. At one point, the mother and her three children were separated from each other by only a few blocks as Holmes had them both holed up in separate locations in Detroit, shortly before crossing into Canada. Holmes's murder spree finally came to an end when he was arrested in Boston on November 17, 1894. Ironically, it was his habit of skipping out on his debts that finally did him in. Holmes never paid Marion Hedgepath the $500 he'd offered him for providing the attorney, and Hedgepath tipped off the cops in return. At first, investigators thought Holmes was just a mere con man and swindler. Later on, as investigators began to retrace Holmes' steps, did the horrifying truth begin to reveal itself. A Philadelphia detective would later discover the decomposed bodies of the two Peitzel girls in Toronto. Holmes had asphyxiated them by placing them inside a large trunk, then pumping gas inside with a hose. The third Peitzel child that had been in his care was a boy, whose charred, dismembered remains were found hidden in the chimney of a cottage Holmes had rented in Indianapolis. But it was what investigators discovered at the castle in Chicago that really made Holmes' reputation. Detectives spent an entire month working their way through the maze-like upper corridors of the House of Horrors. Every room seemed like it held some new atrocity to discover. Inside a large stove on the third floor, they found a piece of gold chain, some woman's hair, and a shoe. They would later take the chain to a local jeweler who had confirmed that he had sold it to Minnie Williams. The inside of the vault contained many scratches from human fingernails, along with a woman's shoe print. They would eventually find the hidden chute Holmes used to send bodies down to the basement. The basement itself contained the worst evidence of all. 
Investigators were stunned to discover that the basement extended far beyond the limits of the property line under the surrounding streets. Down there, Holmes had set up a mad scientist's lab with a dissecting table covered with dried blood. Nearby they found a pile of human bones mixed with animal bones, and another pile of bloody woman's clothing. Further digging revealed a number of lime pits containing the skeletal remains of even more victims. There was an acid pit containing still more human remains, and an oversized kiln that had been used for the same purpose. Only nine murders were confirmed based on the remains they could find, but estimates have reached as many as 200, based upon missing persons reports of the time, as well as eyewitness reports of people who saw Holmes enter the hotel in the company of many young women who were never seen again. In October 1895, Holmes was put on trial for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel and was found guilty and sentenced to death within six days. The Hearst newspapers paid Holmes for his confessions. He gave numerous accounts, many of them conflicting with one another, about his many crimes. Although he initially confessed to 30 murders in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto, some of those victims later turned up alive. Holmes's propensity for lying made it difficult for investigators to get to the truth. That became even more difficult for investigators in August 1895 when a mysterious fire gutted the murder castle in Chicago, destroying much of the evidence. One thing people always want to look for in any tragic situation is why it happened. We attempt to ascribe some meaning to horrific events and then determine what could cause a person to do something so terrible. In the case of Holmes, we can see some of the classic signs of a budding serial killer that had become almost a cliché the abuse of parents, the killing of small animals. Yet right until his death, Holmes remained such a confounding individual, it's difficult to point to any single reason he became the monster that he was. Before he died, he wrote his own memoir, and we at least have that as something of a guide. Although, because of his many lies and deceptions, it's difficult to determine how much of it to believe, or how much of it Holmes went to the grave believing himself. In the end, though, we only have Holmes's explanation for what caused him to be the way he was to guide us. And it's as good an explanation as any. I was born with a devil in me, he wrote. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer, no more than the poet can help the evil one standing as my sponsor, beside the bed where I was ushered into the world, and he has been with me ever since. Holmes was hanged on May 7th, 1896. Ironically, before his death, he asked that his coffin be contained in cement because he was afraid grave robbers would steal his remains and sell them to medical science. The Conspiratus is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity of my own. As a reminder, this episode was brought to you by Audible.com. Sign up now for a free 30-day trial and to receive a free download just for signing up at www.audibletrial.com slash theconspirators. And thanks to you, my faithful listeners, for following me week after week. If you want to continue to help the show grow, please let your friends and family know about us and subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. We're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening.